Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher. I'm here with this is a very special episode of Mindspace because we're doing Jeff Boucher and his amazing friends. We have a group here. We have a brain trust. This is the new Mindspacers. Uh, we're going to try having a, uh, a group effort this time. Gentlemen, will you introduce yourselves? Uh, my name is uh, Matt Medney. I'm the uh, CEO over at uh, Heavy Metal, and uh, I'm excited to talk about horror films and everything uh, between Alfred Hitchcock and Christopher Nolan. I am Patrick, friend of the pod. Uh, if we are doing his amazing friends, I am definitely Iceman. And uh, yeah, just happy to be here. <laughs> so what, uh, what, if you think about Halloween, if you think about uh, scary movies, you know, for you guys, what was, the, what was the one or the few that really scared you the most as a kid? The one that kind of sticks with you because you, you saw it at a time when you were especially vulnerable yeah I, I would say and this is matt heavy metal uh i would say it's, it's unequivocally john carpenter's halloween uh i will tell you that my uh best friend at the time this kid david when i was 10 or 11 uh had me watch it against my will because I'm not really into horror, but he was like, no, you're going to love it, and I'll buy Chinese food for dinner, and, you know, I was a sucker at the time, and I watched it, and then, um, you know, you can cooperate with my mom or dad that for the following three years, I had to have them sit in my bedroom with me before I went to bed, because I was scared shitless that Mike Myers <laughs> was going to come and kill me. Um, <laughs> so Scarred. I What'd that look like? So everybody's sitting there or is it just one person? <laughs> no, no, straight up. It's one person sitting in like a desk chair, just like in there. Basically, you know, it's me being selfish where it's like, if someone's going to die from Mike Myers, it's going to be them first. And at least I'll have a fighting chance. You want <laughs> right. the last thing you see it to be the death of a loved one uh, I, before, at least, before you're killed. Yeah. I mean, at least, at least they would die as an alarm for me to try right. to save myself. <laughs> They're in the coma. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say for me, it's Halloween for sure. Conversely, I, I watched I watched Chucky as a kid. Now I find it hilarious. Right. Uh, I never saw those movies. I, I somehow I, I mean, how do you get through life without seeing a single Chucky movie? I haven't seen a uh, single one. That, that's a very. I, I would love to understand that. I'm and I'm. This is me asking you. How do you get through life without watching a single Chucky movie? Practice. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What about you, Patrick? Did you have a, a movie that haunts your dreams? I did. And, and the more I think about it, the more I think it might not have been a movie, but maybe like a made for TV miniseries. You know, the thing about that that's special about this one is that it scarred me up and down, but I don't actually remember uh, what it's about. I didn't read Fever the book. Dream. 
It's a fever. No, dream. no, it is. It is the uh, original adaptation of Salem's Lot. Oh, I that see. was between the Blue Vampire, you know, and I remember him doing the jump scares and him just having that face on top of it. But it was really the friend at the window knocking to come in. It always that, is. Oh my gosh, it stays with me to this day, and I've never gone back and watched it. I've never even looked at it on YouTube, but it's never left me. And that wow. is seeing the right thing at the right age and it just burns into you like a brand. It's uh, I, my college roommate, I'm gonna steal his story because it's funnier than mine, okay? So he, he, uh, he saw uh, Star Trek as a kid, the reruns of the Star Trek television series, the original series. And his family made note when they walk, uh, his dad you know, walks through the room and sees it on TV and says, oh, that's where your grandfather lives. And, and he's referring to, he sees the Gorn, we all know the Gorn, uh, mm -hmm. the great green lizardy uh, yeah. alien captain from uh, uh, Star Trek, who uh, meets his match when he, uh, that wasn't a sleaze stack, that was me doing the Gorn, <laughs> but he meets his match when he encounters uh, uh, Captain Kirk and his gunpowder uh, that he uh, scavengers from the, the environment of this planet that he's trapped on. Anyway, that's where grandpa lives. And what his father or mother meant by that was, your grandfather lives in Palmdale. This episode of this television series was filmed in Palmdale. That's Palmdale. That's not what he heard. He looks at the TV and goes, <laughs> Grandpa lives on that planet? And then by the time he processed it, he thought the Gorn was his grandfather. He thought that his <laughs> grandfather was the Gorn. And then when he would go visit from then on, he would just cry and scream and kick his feet because he's just waiting for his grandfather to turn into a giant lizard. Jeez, that is amazing. Yeah, so I'm going to take that as my own story and just just, just pretend that happened to me. Um, it's now yours. It is but mine. Do you, well, for have, me, though, do you have a movie yeah. that scared you? Yeah, there was a movie. Uh, it was a B movie, and I, I saw it uh, on TV, uh, and I don't know why it freaked me out so much. There was something about it, um, but Gargoyles, the one with uh, where they're in like this American Southwest, and there's these gargoyles that kind of prey on people um they, you know if you go driving out on the highway at night near you know a film crew apparently you'll encounter these winged men who come out of the sky and, and don't really do much other than look menacing and pose but uh <laughs> you know that it was enough for me i didn't like it i don't know what it was, it was something about it stuck in my head there's also another movie i saw when i was a kid that had these little people that would come out of the cabinets at night and, yes. they would, and they would like, you know, it was like uh, the borrowers, except they had a body count. Were they actually monkeys, though? I think I saw this movie. Were they, was it like monkeys dressed as demons? Oh, I thought it was like little gnome looking dudes. But, you know, like, I, I don't even know the name of the film. Like, and I don't know what it is. It's just it's Jeff it's, Boucher doesn't know the name of a film. It's shards of memory here. I, I can't have a believe I'm here for this. Yeah, I know. Well, no, it happens quite a lot, actually. It's, it's, I love the mysteries in life. I, I, I kind of preserve them uh, <laughs> when, they, when I encounter them. You know, nice. my dad, you know, my dad, uh, who's passed away now, but he, uh, his name was Robert Boucher, and everybody called him Bob. So Bob Boucher, you can see what that reminds you of. Yeah. Uh, when he was still living, I went down to South Florida to see him, and we went to a bar, because as you do, and it was like a Tuesday, and it was really bright outside, and you walk in, so dark, you can't see anything. Um, he took me to meet some of his friends, and there was a, a bartender there, and a, a woman with giant 
stacked blonde hair and major cleavage and a lot of attitude. And when the lights adjusted, I could see her and I was like, hey, wow, how are you doing? And she said, the water boy is here. And she got so excited. My dad chuckles and he gets his drink and then she walks away and he turns to me and goes, every day she says this shit to me, water boy, what does that mean? Do you know what that means? And in my head, I'm thinking, well, you're Bobby Boucher. Yes, yeah, so you're the water boy. Did not tell him. I never told him. Because when you find a mystery in life, you have to leave it alone. He's like, God damn it. Why does she call me this? Oh, man, you got to tell him at some point. You can't let that go on forever. No, no, I left it alone. It's too late now. So, you know, Jeff, you mentioned before the Slee Stacks, you know, in reference to Gorn. That was a scary situation at the right age. I remember the Slee Stacks being... From Land of the Lost, yeah. Yeah, very haunting. I mean, what's your... I know you have some connections to that show. Oh, my God. Well, you got to remember, Land of the Lost, uh, do you remember, do you ever see a show about, uh, uh, it starts off with a, a wonderful theme song and uh, people in a raft going over a waterfall that looks like a hose um, and like <laughs> plastic cutouts. Uh, and it's, uh, it's about a family time tossed uh, in the world and they end up in this like uh, forgotten land called the Land of the Lost because they're lost and they're there. That's where they land. And uh, there's like lizard people there. Uh, slee stacks they have these big eyes and they they kind of do like a mork for mork thing with their hand uh a nanu nanu kind of thing and then they just hiss a lot it's and not move it's, slowly it's better if you saw it i, I think this is um, it doesn't sound that good the way i say it <laughs> no no that's I, <laughs> I i i've never watched the original land of the lost unfortunately which is shocking but oh, it's, it's too late now <laughs> it's too late yeah don't don't even do it now Really? Oh, I feel like I should. Yeah. I, I'm kind of of the to. mindset I'm, that I need to. I'm fascinated yeah. by the Croft brothers. You know, that's, those are the, the brothers Croft. They did um, uh, Land of the Lost and they did Lidsville and HR Puff and stuff and uh, Witchy Poo and uh, Banana Splits. Uh, yeah. All these like nutty, nutty shows. And I, I went and I interviewed those guys once um, and they hate each other, first of all, which is hysterical. <laughs> Uh, they're brothers, but they uh, one is very, very much uh, the business guy, and one is very much the kind of he's almost like Chauncey Gardner, uh, you know, from being there. He's he's a very creative guy, but he's kind of diffused and on slightly on tape delay. It's hard to get his focus and stuff. <laughs> and I went to interview them, and they're bickering the whole time. And one of uh, one of them, the brother who is more creative, uh, he told me you know, uh, he really took a liking to me, and he started telling me all this stuff. And one of the things he says is you know, to his brother, I don't think we should lie to him. I think we should tell him the truth. You know, we've been lying to everybody for all these decades, but I think we should tell Jeff the truth. He's like, what are you doing? He, like, he starts screaming at him. Like, this happens in front of me. And I'm like, whoa, I don't need any family secrets. No family secrets. No, <laughs> I just wanted to do my story and get out of here. And basically there was this confession that, uh, that for years they had, they had pretended to have a, a long pedigree of, uh, or long heritage of puppeteers dating back to you know, several generations in Europe and that they were famed, the Croft puppeteers. And there was no such thing. It was just all just uh, made up. Yeah, in the early 60s when if you did a press release and nobody could prove it was wrong, it was true. You know, uh, so it was, uh, it, was, it was that kind of era. Um, that's that's almost genius. <laughs> well, their publicist uh, had a great thing too. And this, this really kind of sticked in my mem- sticks in my memory is that... Uh, the publicist would call bars in New York uh, at like 
five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, and page his clients just so people would hear them being called at the busiest club in New York or the busiest uh, bar in New York. So brilliant. The, the, yeah, I love that. It's similarly, uh, similarly but completely different is how I think, you know, like technology's kind of ruined the ability for things like that to happen. And I always go back to like baseball, right? Like baseball's, the, the heart of baseball is all about, you know, stealing signs and giving signs and, and doing all these crazy things that you can't really do anymore because of tape, right? Mm. And, and to your point, it's like, you know, those types of stories, I think, are like what made Hollywood Hollywood, right? Like, like crazy right. stories, think people doing things that are so unconventional to make something work. And yeah. you, can't, you can't do that anymore, which is unfortunate. Another movie that I had on my list that I was just, I was just Googling, and I am beyond shocked that they categorize it as a thriller and not a horror movie, because this is definitely stick, stuck with me, is J.J. Uh, Abrams' Joyride from 2001. Uh, wow. the, uh, so Paul Walker, J.J. Abrams, and the, the long and short of it is they uh, they they fuck with this trucker. Uh, they're in their own convertible. They fuck with this trucker. This trucker hunts them down and skins them alive. And it is the oh. uh, and it yeah exactly <laughs> exactly. So so I don't know how that's a thriller and not a horror movie, but it has definitely ingrained a sense of um, uh, nervousness on dark highway roads at night for eternity. Wow. I bet. So is that JJ just completely doing Spielberg's duel, like like trying to to almost follow in his footsteps? I I completely missed that that film I, credit. It probably yeah. So it was it was two thousand one, directed by John Dahl, written by JJ, featuring oh, Clay Taver gotcha. and Paul Walker. Okay, wow. Where in two thousand one? That was a big yeah. year. It was. You know, yeah. like what what month? You you don't happen to know what month that was, do you? Uh, yeah, October fifth, two thousand one. Distributed by Twentieth Century Fox. It was. Uh, That's it why was... you never heard of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's just like uh, uh, Ryan Carey's Glitter came out the same day, September eleventh. Mm -hmm. The movie. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow! So uh, John Dahl, though, that's a, he he did uh, Red Rock West, which I'm a huge fan of. I thought that was really great. So I'll, I'll check that out. But that sounds like a Spielbergian career moment. Yeah, I mean, it definite, <laughs> it, it, it's definitely darker than than I thought it was gonna be. Um, uh -huh. So that one, that one, that one, that one left a uh, a. Um, I didn't realize that was JJ. Wow. Yeah, he yeah, scared that, you. Yeah, he scared me. And uh, another one, another psychological thriller that that gave me the heebie-jeebies would be uh, John Cusack's Identity. Oh, that, that was one, good. Yeah, that one. That one definitely made, always makes you think. Like, is it is is it really you in there, right? So now, so now we're getting into like the movies that disturbed us. You know, we're out of scared and into like disturbed is is actually a better a better playground for me. I, I love walking out of a movie yeah. completely beside myself. I don't know if you guys ever seen or even heard of this movie called Mysterious Skin. Um, I had not seen it. A, a friend of mine, you know, I'm at his apartment. He's like, you got to see this movie, puts this movie on. And it's about two different kids. One kid is a kid who has reoccurring memories of having been abducted by a UFO and it's kind of taken over his life. 
And the other kid is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he's kind of just like a wayward uh, kid in a small, kind of too big for a small town. And as it goes on, spoiler alert for anyone, but Joseph Gordon-Levitt essentially becomes a male uh, prostitute in that town. Uh, He goes down a crazy dark path, but it is nothing compared to the kid with the UFO. And if I were to tell you what's actually going on, it would ruin the entire movie for you. Again, Greg Araki, Mysterious Skin. Wow. But it's, a, it's an alien movie? I can't even tell you what it is without ruining it. There's a UFO in it, that's for sure. Uh, and where it goes from there is both brilliant and probably the most disturbing movie I've ever seen. Sign me up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Uh, I, I, I would say uh, you said UFO and it jogged my memory, Patrick. The only movie in my whole life that I walked out of because I was too scared. Mind you, I was eight at the Garfield. time. Is, is my, my granddad took me to see Mars Attacks when it came out. And as an, as an eight-year-old, I remember them disintegrating the president, who I believe was Jack Nicholson, and I yeah. like had a panic attack. And I had to leave the theater. <laughs> can we, uh, Jeff? Can we can we jump on the topic of Tim Burton since he's brought up this movie? Like, this Absolutely. is a guy who who definitely traffics in horror tropes, but is never scary, with the exception of being eight years old at Mars Attacks. What is the deal with this man? What is going on? <laughs> I think you know what I. That's a, it's an interesting point, but I think your answer is in the question itself. Like, why do kids uh, dress up for Halloween? Like, why do the uh, little boys? Uh, especially like my uh, speaking memory my son uh his halloween tastes as opposed to my daughter's halloween tastes over the years um as the scariest thing possible you know i I think it takes the fear out of things so i think a lot of it's it's not even i think he wants to not be afraid so he he uh he kind of superimposes those horror tropes over a very safe and and uh a heartfelt world you know like tim burton movies are like heaving heart sadness you know like if you think about it like edward scissorhands and just the the even sweeney todd and the lives that these people lead maybe not sweeney todd but there's a lot of sadness in them and and, you know and and you think about tim burton where he grew up he grew up in you know burbank and he he felt like he was never in the right place he always felt like he was like ichabod crane dropped in the middle of la law you know and i think that that comes across that discomfort and unease outsiderishness uh comes across in the movies but it's funny is that the it, you're right there's not a whole lot that's scary uh sweeney Todd no. would probably be the scariest thing he ever did but but it but it is it is uh hard uh, i never thought of it that way uh patrick because it is all of his movies are horror tropes in a you know comedic or thriller backdrop right you know beetlejuice on you know uh. It's scary if you take out the actual movie, right? It's a haunting, right? It's a, it's a scary yeah. premise, but it's done in a comedic way. There's nothing scarier than an afterlife bureaucracy. <laughs> like, like that's really terrifying. That there's it a goes government with bureaucracy. Us. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty pretty awful, actually. And When's uh, the last time? You, I'm sorry to cut you guys off. When was the last time we've all seen Beetlejuice? Because I could tell you, I saw it within the last two months because my daughter's become obsessed with the soundtrack to the play. So I've seen this movie recently. It is weirder than you remember. It is, yes. uh, it's not a movie that can come out now. That is for sure. 
it's I agree. It's, yeah. It's very weird. I saw it like six months ago um, with Alexis, and it is strange. I watch. I watch it every strange. Tuesday morning. I watch uh, it every Tuesday morning. So speaking of strange, yeah. <laughs> uh, just just for the calypso song at the end, you know, it just nice. it gets. Oh, I love it. Um, the scariest thing in that movie uh, is the scene where the cigarette smoke comes out of the throat of the uh, the, uh. the caseworker. I thought that was that's pretty inspired. But it, you, you know, you raise an interesting point. I mean, he uh, it's uh, he's more cabaret than he is. Uh, body count you know as far as it's like this boneyard cabaret kind of it's a, a, a visual motif for him you know uh, more than it is a uh, psychological premise you know his horror stuff yeah. to me look at the first three I mean Tim Burton's first movie is Pee Wee's Big Top Adventure right and then yes, uh, classic Beetlejuice boom like wow and then third movie Batman like who that's a heck of a way to start a career and like none of those lead to the next reasonably no nothing about peewees makes you think oh let's give this guy a big special effects budget and nothing about beetlejuice makes you think oh this is the guy to do batman uh, especially since he didn't really like comic books you know like uh, he, he, he wasn't a big comic book guy uh which is funny neither was Brian Singer, you know, he, he never really read comics and, and John Favreau didn't really read much comics growing up. So it's interesting. Those three guys had such a huge impact on these superhero movies and the, the direction of them with Batman and with Iron Man um, and the X-Men that none of them really had conflicts as a tradition at all. That might be the key. Yeah, that's a good, although Sam Raimi was, you know, a devoted fan. So that first, you know, those first two Spider-Man movies are pretty good. Uh, uh, in general, you know, hopping back to the topic of uh, movies that are unsettling, this is one um, that really, really stuck with me. And it came out in 1975. Now, I was born in 1969, and this was a, a TV movie. So, this is, and I remember this. So, it's one of the first things I really remember I held on to as a memory. But it was, um, I, I love that TV show Bewitched, you know, the original. Yeah. Uh, yeah, with Elizabeth Montgomery, very Fantastic. attractive woman. Uh, and with her, uh, you know, although she had sort of a strange way of approaching um, matrimony and, and divorce, she just changed her husband without telling anybody. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a, a sobering statement there. But um, I really liked her and, and I thought she was fun and safe and happy and uh, sweet. This is my five-year-old self. Um, and then I saw this movie that she made, The Legend of Lizzie Borden. Oh, jeez. Now, we all know Lizzie Borden, right? Like uh, uh, the one that give, gives the wax with the, the axe, you know? Yep. Uh, it's a real life person uh, who, uh, you know, was charged with murder uh, and went on trial famously in uh, the 19th century. Um, and I didn't know that history when I saw this. All I know is what sticks with me is she, in the movie, takes off all her clothes and she's naked. Now that jumped out at me, okay? That, that caught my attention. And she's walking around with an ax and then she kills her family. So it starts off so good for me and then it just goes so sideways. <laughs> like even as a five-year-old, a five-year-old, I was sort of fascinated by, oh my gosh, she's taking her clothes off. I don't know if this is appropriate, but I'm going to stick with it. And then she, she proceeds to walk around the house naked and then I'm really kind of interested and then the ax thing threw me because I did not see that coming. That's amazing. 
so that's my uh the, the the silence from you guys just that hurt me so much just because no. I, I now i think you're really worried about me like it's it's okay it's, I, it's, I mean are you okay no, jeff I, just I, I, it, it, it was oh, more man. of a silence of of just shock because i could you know that that for me that would be like the equivalent of uh you know sarah michelle geller killing everyone in her family growing up watching buffy the vampire slayer right Right, so I, right. I was I was more internalizing how much despair that caused you. Yeah, and yeah. And, and it had unexpected repercussions uh, repercussions on my dating life for many many years because you know, I just did not trust people. <laughs> no, <laughs> had to get the axe out of the bedroom. Yeah, exactly. I have an axe to grind. How many wax <laughs> did she give? Uh, here's the rhyme: Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. Yep. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty one. Now, in the movie, as the naked lady from Bewitched is swinging the axe, you hear the sing-songy, um, Lizzie Borden took it, all these kids like reciting this thing like over and over. It's really, these people are very irresponsible to put this on television. Well, yeah. it, uh, it, it somehow helped shape Jeff Boucher. Yeah, well, you know, so what's the thoughts on that? Like we have, you know, we're all in this industry and I think a lot of people that I deal with have a lot more lax attitudes in terms of what they're going to put in front of their kids at an early age. I know a lot of editors who are in the horror world and other people who purposely show their kids the most gruesome things, you know, and probably because they may have seen it too early. Uh, so it was formative for them and, and maybe they're recreating that, but you know, it takes, cause Jeff, you have kids, I have kids, mm -hmm. Matt, uh, you don't, but this is good to know going up. Like, you know, these kids are taking in every little last thing. Jeff, what's, what's your take on that? It's, you know, with, um, with my kids, what I did is I, I kind of curated it, uh, but it, it was just as much toward uh, picking things that I thought would be really, really good for them as opposed to just avoiding things that would be bad. But when my kids were li real little, I, I gave them silent movies uh, before they could talk. I was having them watch stuff that didn't speak just so they could kind of you know, Charlie Chaplin communicates with a two-year-old or a, a three-year-old in a way that nothing else does. So, um, and then I built them up to the little rascals and then, uh, you know, and I actually planned out their, their consumed entertainment for years. Um, and uh, of course, the problem is that they now think that they grew up during the Depression because of the little rascals and all the Charlie Chaplin stuff. Oh, nice. And they just don't really understand, uh, you know, they, they're not big fans of Hoover. You know, they have real strong opinions about the jitterbug, you know, things like that. So um, not everything goes the way you expected, but I, I know what you're talking about with people. There is this, uh, uh, this trend or this, uh, this reality that happens with uh, people where they show their kids like really, really horrible stuff, like really scary stuff. And I think it's, for some of them, it's, I think they're almost kind of amused by the situation. I think other people, they, they want to take it, the, the sting out of it or the fear out of it. So they're like, look, it's just a movie, you know, like maybe there's some aspect of that or they're preparing their child for the world uh, or for, you know, the, uh, the mental ward. I, I, I'm not really sure. But this is, I, I ran into this with Eli Roth, you know, because Eli Roth, that's, that's how Eli was raised. Um, his parents both, uh, if I recall right, uh, they're both well-regarded uh, psychologists and, and they took Eli to see uh, the Exorcist on the big screen when he was like, you know, under the age of five. 
Uh, they took him to see Alien. They took him to see Amityville Horror. They took him to see everything. They, they would go see a movie every weekend. And um, I, I, if I recall, right, and that the uh, this tradition had its had real noticeable consequences for the ushers of the movie theaters of these theaters that they went to uh, in the uh, East Coast. Um, you know, Eli became known as Puke Boy because he would just go running down the aisles like halfway through the movie trying to get to the lobby in time. And he told me this story. I, I talked to him for a story for, I did on the LA uh, did on him for the LA Times, a cover story years ago when Hostel came out. And he told me that story, and I got so mad, or I guess uh, outrage. I don't know. I, it, it so shocked me that I, I insisted on uh, talking to his parents. So I got their number in New York and called them up and, and talked to them and put them in the story. And, and for them, they just didn't believe any of the, um, the, the point of view that uh, what you put into a kid entertainment-wise affects them in their character or in their judgment or in yeah. their you know, well-being, which, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I guess that Eli turned out well. He's a big success. He killed Hitler. You know, I mean, Hitler. Who, who wouldn't be proud of having their son kill Hitler? Uh, I, have a, I have one question on that. Did you ask them if they also don't believe in vaccines? No, I did not ask them. Uh, <laughs> they, I did not ask them that. It's a good question. It's a good question. They were very you nice know, people. They were very nice people. It's interesting because, you know, Eli must have grown up then around a lot of psychology and kind of uh, extrapolating from there. Is kind of, you could see the path to hostile too. You yeah. know, where it's the two businessmen who believe they have to kill someone to appear tougher in the boardroom, you know, that you wear that. It's almost like Eli seeing those movies and then kind of taking it in. And it's, it's you know, I don't know what, uh, a tool at that point. Yeah, it, it, you're right. I, I, he also, much like uh, uh, like J.J. Abrams also, um, he became fascinated by visual effects and the making of visual effects and, and with the behind the scenes stuff. So he was having like, um, as like a 10 year old or, so, or some such, he would have like a cake that looked like it was full of blood and things like that. So he, he, he became the, the horror movie uh, kid. And, and then of course that took all the sting out of the, uh, the movies for him and probably put him on a pedestal among his, his generational peers who probably thought that he was pretty scary just because he, you know, could do all this, could see all these movies. That's wild. I mean, Jeff, like you've interviewed a lot of these people. What, what do you think these horror directors all have in common? Or like, have you noticed any trends or patterns with just horror directors across the board? We, um, no, not really. You know, uh, some of them are, are silly. A lot of them are silly. Uh, or they, you know, they're, they just kind of really enjoy the nerd math of the job you know, uh, mm -hmm. figuring out the visual effects and the, and the camera and, the, um, and all that. Uh, and they, a lot of, of them are students of the, the genre. The big thing that I've noticed in, re in recent years mostly is the same thing everybody else has noticed is, is just the influx of uh, comedy. Uh, and, and taking, I mean, you know, you have Simon Pegg and Nick Frost making a horror film, like a real horror film. A real one, uh, yeah. You have Chris, Chris Rock doing Saw. Uh, he's, you know, now right. in the center of the Saw yep. franchise, which I don't think anybody saw coming. Uh, I mean, Saw and Fargo, like his next steps. I was like, okay, totally caught me off guard. <laughs> I didn't yeah. not see you doing the Saw-Fargo uh, career combo. And, uh, and with, with Saw, though, real quick, because that was supposed to come out this year. Did What, what would you say is like your top three uh, Halloween must-sees? 
movie wise, just like things that you enjoy watching during Halloween. Cause like, you know, for the last decade, it was definitely a tradition to like go see Saw, the new Saw during Halloween time. Right. And obviously oh, this yeah. year we can't do that. So uh, Jeff, you first, like what are, what are three Halloween must sees for you that like you just always well, watch in that time? Sure. Uh, you know, well, I think Halloween, uh, it's uh, a classic and I love the, uh, it's got the extra benefit of having the William Shatner, uh, Captain Kirk mask as, yeah. you know, kind of weaved into, woven into the fabric of its awesomeness. I, you know, so I'd put that one up there and, you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for the old movies, um, the old universal horror films and the classic stuff. You know, I, I really think I love the exorcist. Uh, I, I, I was thinking more like really old school, like Dracula and, and, and um, Bride of Frankenstein's a favorite. So I, I'll, I'd put Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, and then The Exorcist, you know, I've interviewed William Freakin a few times over the years and his stories about making that movie. That's a movie that scares the hell out of me. It's a movie that scares the hell out of the people that make it, made it. Uh, it scares the hell out of a lot of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, there a lot of bad things happened while they were making that movie. You know, a lot of really strange things. Uh, know, uh, some tragic things as well. Yeah, the, the the making of that movie would be a, a you know crazy documentary because yeah. uh, I've I've heard a bunch of those things too. Which it would it would make your head spin. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. The um, yeah. You're you're right. It's the Exorcist is is a one of a kind film. I think too. It's easy to forget this now, um, but that movie was released on Christmas Day. <laughs> audacious talk about audacious like yeah. the know, original like, exorcist was released on christmas day i believe so yeah i believe so um, oh my god you're 100 right yeah. it was i'm looking at it right it now is that is fucking crazy yeah talk about uh audacity and uh you know the uh, uh the catholic league and everybody was coming out against this movie and uh and everybody was lining up on christmas day to see it so uh, kudos to to William Freakin and company uh, and Warner Brothers for doing that, and they ended up getting you know a Best Picture nomination out of it, which is a pretty rare achievement. I think only one horror film has ever won Best Picture, and very few have even been nominated. The only one that you know that has even come close to winning it is the one that did win it was uh, Silence of the Lambs. And and, and oh, wow. Exorcist did win the Academy Award for Best Writing for Best Script. So that's right. That's and, nothing uh, for Get Out. That, that no, I meant uh, just for best picture. I was talking oh, about gotcha. just best picture. Yeah, no, Get Out definitely won an Oscar, uh, you know, for writing, uh, and 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 definitely deserved it. But I think Exorcist is the only one. Um, excuse me. I think that uh, Sound Slam is the only one that actually won best picture. Uh, Sound Slam as a horror also, movie, as a horror film. Yeah, it's um, in fact it won best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, and a screenplay. So, uh, Sansa Lamb, uh, Lambs won five, really the five marquee categories, if you think about it. Um, and that's only happened three times in history. There's only two other films that have done that. They got the, the director, one of the writing awards, and then best actor and best actress. Uh, and I'll just tell you what it is because it's just Please. impossibly hard. But it's uh, <laughs> One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. That uh, makes sense. Uh, the Milos Forman movie. and with uh, Louise Fletcher and, and uh, Jack Nicholson winning the awards. And then um, you have to go all the way back to It Happened One Night, the Frank Capra movie with uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Um, those are the only three. 
And those films really have nothing in common, those three films. Like one's <laughs> a mental ward, one's a, like a, a romantic uh, escapade, and the other is a, you know, a horror uh, serial killer fantasy. That is, uh, yeah, none of those stuff. have anything, anything in common. The only other movie that I could think of or series that I could think of that has won a, a crazy amount of awards, maybe not those categories, but just yeah. th that, that amount would be like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think all three of them took home like something like 36 Academy Awards across the board. Yeah. Jesus. Which yeah, is it's true. absurd. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and Gollum has got them all. <laughs> just just holds on to him. <laughs> just sits there and just stares at him. He shines him over and over and over. That, that, that would be the greatest meme ever made. <laughs> you were talking made. about, you were talking about uh, Halloween um, movies. What about for you guys? What would be the three, uh, the three Halloween takeaway movies that you would... Uh, Patrick, you go first. And I'll tell you, man. There's, there's one movie, I think I associate it with that time of year only because I saw it like in the fall. Very, very young. Really uh, effed me up. But it's the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, I love that movie, yeah. That's oh, one of those original. movies, the original one, not the, the Sunderland 50s. one. But yeah. Yes, the McCarthy one. Uh, it was one of those movies where that like terrifies you during the day. It's like a daylight mm -hmm. scared. It's like a look over your shoulder scared. It's uh, that unease, just even the sun is beaming. It's a, it's a nice day out. You're terrified. That movie is so unnerving that one just pops out of my head. I don't really have a, uh, you know, a Halloween perennial, but I love the idea, you know, like zombie movies where it could be the person closest to you. You know, that's the one who's going to get you. I yeah. was, that was a, a, a instant scare. Yeah. The scrolls too. The scrolls, the original <laughs> scrolls. Oh, yeah, wow. Just like the, the, oh, the, wow. Can't, don't trust anything you see. Um, the <laughs> Vice Snatchers is great. Those, both of them. I, I like the seventies one as well. I think it's really, really good. I agree. Yeah. I would, I would say for me, so, the original Saw is just mm -hmm. so, I just loved it because it's, and, and correct me if you can think of other movies, but in my opinion, it's the only movie that goes from horror to thriller in the last three minutes. Like you realize mm -hmm. it's actually a thriller at the end of the movie when it does the montage of showing how it cascaded to that original moment. And I thought the original song was just masterful in, in, in keeping you scared and then satisfying you with an answer at the end that justified the means in a way that I hadn't seen in other Halloween scary movies before. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, definitely a very satisfying, uh, it's very satisfying in its intricate uh, set up and delivery. You know, a lot of movies, uh, they can gather things, but can they do the payoff? Can they, you know, exactly. set up all the dominoes and then push the dominoes and then have them all fall down? You know, a lot of times you can set up the dominoes, but only some of them fall down. But it's, exactly. uh, that one is like Usual Suspects, yeah. uh, which, which was the Favorite. satisfying and the Spanish Prisoner uh, and, you know, Sleuth. You know, those, so those are some of the movies where you get this complex setup and then, you know, uh, the, the payoff or... Uh, comes and you can feel it coming and you know that it's going to you can feel it it's like a satisfying click when it falls into place but you don't quite know what it is you know mm -hmm. um, uh, with usual suspects i felt that like i could feel the momentum building towards something but i couldn't quite you know figure out what it was and then you have things like sixth sense you know um but that one i i, I figured out you know pretty quick just because 
uh, I got, yeah. I wanted to be, I wanted to be right. Uh, he did. I did not. Well, really? You didn't, you didn't figure that out? I wasn't oh, looking. Sorry, like that, to me, that's that a great sl- sleight of hand. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was, it's fair. It was, it was, it was, uh, my problem with that one is it was obvious in its title to me. Right. Like, like I knew in its title that that's what it was. Like for me, the problem was you start it and you instantly assume that someone has to be dead, that that's the sixth sense. And then I start thinking, what is the unexpected version of that? And then mm. I realize that relatively quickly. But if it wasn't called sixth sense, I would not have gotten it mm. until the end. That was, that was just, that was just my personal take on that one. Another one for me is House of a Thousand Corpses. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, that's a that that's a great Halloween one, and it's sequel Dev, uh, Devil's Rejects. I thought th- yes. those are fun. Those are fun. Yeah. Um, and, and, and going in that direction, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, yes. I'm a big fan, I, that, that, big fan of that. That was my third one. Yeah, oh, <laughs> that one's got a great story to it. Cabin in the Woods. You know, I mean, I'm rewatching uh, West Wing right now. And I, uh, I totally didn't realize. Just not getting enough politics in your life? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I was going to say, um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name now, but uh, uh, one of the main characters Archie? in West Wing. No, uh, what's his name? Um, Bradley Woodford, who play, uh, is, is, is the, the, the controller in Cabin in the Woods. Uh, uh, and and then and then you know the Romero pictures. All, all the zombies are great Halloween movies for me. Um, yeah. And then and then something I I, I always found uh, one that kind of scared me that we didn't talk about earlier. But for Nightmare Nightmare on Elm Street um, with Freddy Krueger is definitely one that scares me more so than slasher movies. At least today, right? Knowing mm-hmm. that like. If, if 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 your dreams are going to kill you or your delusions are going to kill you and those are your two options that is uh terrifying wait for that inception nightmare on elm street mashup that oh even is, that you just blew my mind wow i wasn't thinking <laughs> that yeah <laughs> now i'm waiting for it <laughs> i think with uh with the nightmare on elm street i think the uh, Matt, one of the things that uh, I think of when you when you were reflecting on it is that it, it was that Robert England England uh, performance. Like he really, really jumped into that character in a way that uh, made it his own. You know, and, uh, more than the other killer, you know, creatures of that era. Yeah, and what about Dream Warriors? Didn't you want to be a Dream Warrior? Oh, I am. I am. A dream you are warrior. definitely a Dream Warrior. Oh yeah. I mean, they were a superhero team that operated in the dream world. I thought that was cool. It wasn't scary at all that that particular one, but I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah, it, it reminded me of uh, Jack Kirby's Sandman. You know, from the seventies, he did a, a mm-hmm. remake of uh, it's the version of Sandman that's not the Golden Age one, and it's not the Neil Gaiman one, but the one right in the middle where it's this guy that lives in a like a interdimensional uh, uh, headquarters and visits people's dreams and stuff like that but he's got all these great kirby gadgets and stuff like that oh that sounds fantastic i'm a i'm a big jack kirby fan in general so i need a i need i have not uh experienced that one what um what do you guys think of the i i I don't know what to call them the, the the new age you know horror movies be it like paranormal activity or um blair witch project 
these kind of, you know, first person handheld camera vibe, uh, scary movies. Do you, because for me, you know, as someone that, that gets scared by scary movies, they mm-hmm. didn't really scare me. They, they were kind of more no. funny, right? Like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, those things scared me. You know, Cabin in the Woods was was a, a, a beautiful satire on the genre. But then, like, I watched Blair Witch, and I know it's, you know, functionally the most successful, uh, or Paranormal Activity, I think, is technically the most successful investment to reward from a fiscal point of view. But me at my age, and, and we're all in that same bracket, um, those don't make sense to me. And I, I'm curious what your guys' take are on those. Yeah, they don't make sense to me either. I mean, specifically, um, the ones, these are really like uh, specific companies putting out a lot of these kind of on their own. But when you do the haunted house thing, I never understood why, you know, the ghost starts kind of like showing you things, maybe slamming a door, and then it builds up to this thing's actually powerful after all. I'm like, what the fuck are we waiting for? Why are you like fucking with the kids? Why are you slamming windows? Like, Yo, just kill these people. You'll have a you know a greater <laughs> turnover. Right. Um, but yeah, Jeff, what the what's the deal with that? They never it, they stopped explaining even why it used to be like, oh, it thrives on fear. That was always kind of a thing. Now right. it's just what happens. What is that? it? Just happens. It's just the way things go. You know, it's the way things go. What can you do? Um, yeah, you know, to me, to me, it's like uh, it's like a, uh, making a roller coaster. You know, the, the, to me, those movies those aren't even necessarily. Uh, narrative stories being told uh, that's not a, that, that's a movie that's being presented for its th- uh, you know its shock value and the, the jump and the the ritual of it um, God, you're so forgiving Jeff like you are you are <laughs> such a well-rounded cultural critic uh, that you're able to see in such a, a, a spectrum that I'm not unable to see because I start seeing that and I'm, first of all I'd be gone after the first sign of anything, grabbing the kids. They have the kids sleeping in the other room, always down the hall, usually two kids in one room. I, I, I'm with you. That, 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 that's my problem. I'm like, one, one issue. Like one issue. One, one window slam that makes no sense. I'm, I'm getting the fuck out. Bye. Bye. Yeah. yeah. This is Eddie Murphy. Or, Eddie Murphy, or, right? Yeah. Or, 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 or let me let Damn, baby, we got to go. Let's take it one step further. One of the kids dies. I'm out. How do uh, they stay there after people gone. are dying? Gone. <laughs> well, you know, once the camera's rolling, you got to stay. See, but but you that, can, you know, you see, can't. that's true. But that's what I love so much about Cabin in the Woods is they tried to leave and they 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 stop, they, they plug that trope. They're like these All guys right. are getting the fuck out of here and then they're like fuck, we can't leave. That was yeah. sick. <laughs> Can we talk Cabin in the Woods for a second, though? Like, I don't believe for one second that anyone in that group were A, their age, or B, friends. Well, yes. <laughs> oh, those people loathe each other. Yes, yes, they, yes. They loathe each other, you can tell. <laughs> they, they, uh, you, know, you know, being forgiving on it, they spent all of their time on the world and the setup and the function yeah. and levers, and they kind of forgot about the, that dialogue. Mind you, half these characters killed each other, or were dead within minutes. But True. yes, I, I agree with you. You know, my- I think that was part of the satire too. I, yeah. I was gonna say like, uh, you know, building, you know, you know leaning in and, and, and giving them the benefit of the doubt. I would think the, the dialogue choices were a satire on like the screen movies where you really can't believe these guys actually liked each other. 
Right. Yeah. Gotcha. I, 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 I took it as part of that. Just the, the, the callow, uh, you know, just aura of the, the, the genres, you know, uh, acting history, you know, the actors, you know, you watch these films and you're just like, God, that guy's a jerk, you know, like, you know, <laughs> or those people hate each other. Or, My God, these people are barely professional. What is going on? <laughs> I, I felt like that they were, they were kind of, uh, nodding to all that. And, uh, you know, one of the things that through the years, it's funny, I uh, have some Blu-rays that I hold on to. And that's one I hold on to with affection because on the, one of the bonus uh, attractions on the Cabin in the Woods uh, Blu-ray is my stage interview with Joss Whedon and uh, oh, wow. Drew Goddard that uh, did at WonderCon the day the movie came out uh, at a movie theater. And I just love uh, that there's, there's like eight or nine Blu-rays that I have that on, uh, that kind of thing on. And it's, uh, it gives me a, a ridiculous source, source of pride. Like I, it makes me so happy to have that like to, on the shelf. Um, That's cool. Yeah, it's kind of fun because that one, I really like that movie a lot. I really like the yeah, movie. I mean, the unicorn for me, once the unicorn shows up, just for, I mean, on screen for what? Maybe a second and a half of yeah, a, a bloody horned unicorn. And I'm like, okay, I'm in, I'm in. It you was, got me. It, it was a perfect um you know like single drop narrative right it built for yeah. one moment the whole movie and then it delivered on that moment epically at the end <laughs> it's just Absolutely. so it, 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 yeah i i couldn't agree with you more that is one of my all-time favorite just move not even horror movies just movies because it, it 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 plays such a reflective lens on a a somewhat drawn out subgenre of horror and does it in a satirical mm. way that you know you really have to be clever when you write that to not make it campy right yeah well drew, drew goddard like he's you know it's just like uh his stuff is so well written i think so well structured you know uh like the martian uh he does really really well with intricate stuff but we we didn't cool. wrote a lot of it too yeah they wrote together they yeah 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 uh, but, and well, um, Drew directed it. Drew yes, directed Drew, it. Drew directed Road, and then Josh, Josh was the lead writer on it. But the That's you know, right. thinking about it now, like because I haven't really talked about it or thought about it, but like there's definitely a lot of you know nods to the the Buffy and Angel tropes in in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know? yeah, and that's this Josh that's coming out of him. He can't. Yeah, turn yeah, that yeah. Off. Totally. That's <laughs> so great. I mean, Buffy. You know, season season four, where the principal becomes this like smoke monster lizard guy. That you know, I was like in twelfth uh, grade, and I thought my principal was that evil. It was it was just fantastic. It does happen. It does happen. And all this makes me think that we really should get Richard Jenkins on the show. You know, because uh, <laughs> oh my god, because Cabin in the Woods and then uh, Shape of Water and I'm down. You know, I I think he's fantastic. Let me in. Remember, uh, he was in the uh, Matt Reeves version of Let uh, Me In. And, uh, he's the dad in yes, Step Brothers. Step Brothers, Witches of Eastwick, the um, and of course, Eat, Pray, Love. Right. What? Talk about a horror movie. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. I'm looking. Yeah, I'm looking at his credits right now to see if there's anything else that I remember. I mean, he. I think is he not. No, he's not the dad in in a uh, 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 Bill and Ted, is he? No, I think so. I don't think so. Nah. No, I forget who plays. I haven't seen it in years. No, no, the new one. I, th- I 
couldn't oh. I can't remember oh. who who played who played that. I thought it was him for a second, but I don't think it is. Um Well I'm looking at his uh films Hannah and her sisters 1986 so he that that's crazy wow. I forgot he was in that uh, um, Liam Neeson's in that as well um, that's wow me myself and Irene Bone Tomahawk yeah and and in Spotlight uh, of course Jeff what's your take on on uh, American Psycho uh, you know I it's a movie I appreciate more than I enjoy maybe um, I, you know, but I think it's an amazing performance. Um, the music, it's, you know, that's all, it's, it's music that uh, I hated at that time. So it was hard for me to, uh, I don't know. Uh, it, the music is, is not my favorite. Huey Lewis we're talking about here? Yeah, no, it's just, uh, uh, as soon as I said that, I realized I don't really feel that way. Never. <laughs> Strike that from the record. Strike that what, from the record. What, what do you think of original Psycho? You know, Psycho, I think, is a, it's a pretty fascinating movie. Um, it's a movie that I, I misunderstood for a while, you know. Um, and it's a movie Hitchcock said different things about. At one point, said it was a comedy, you know, uh, which I, I don't really think he really felt that. But a lot of people consider that the first horror film that, right. that, that invented the horror genre. Um, what I didn't know is, I, because it was black and white, I assumed that it was older than the films that Hitchcock made that were in color as I was growing up watching his films and stuff. So I watched North by Northwest or, uh, you know, uh, Rear Window and think that Psycho came first, which made it even stranger. Uh, it was only later I found out that, uh, you know, Psycho came after those films. It's just, it was uh, because of nature of a film, he couldn't get the financing that he could for North by Northwest and those bigger films. So that's why I was in black and white. And also that enhanced the sort of the horror of the starkness of the, the just setting and stuff. But I think it's a masterful film. I think it's really uh, fascinating. The, the use of bird imagery, you know, um, uh, the woman's name Crane and, you know, and Anthony Perkins was uh, cast partly because he looked bird-like, you know, the way that he moved and and that <laughs> that, that was in, in, uh, encouraged on the set, the way that he sort of uh, acted. Um, and that that final scene with the, the the car and the submerging and then kind of falling back on uh, on Norman and seeing his face, you know, there really hadn't been anything like that in film before, where it's like we're going to look in the face of evil and and make that not just uh, a part of the film but the center of the film, and also we're going to let him have the the, the walk off, like he's 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 getting the John Wayne into the sunset. Uh, it's just that it's uh, sunset with Thorazine and. Straight jacket. <laughs> totally. It, it, the, everything Hitchcock does is so fascinating to me because he's like, you know, not a ton of his films are like remade in like a literal fashion, like so much of Hollywood is, but right. everyone says Psycho that is. they're almost derivative of Hitchcock, right? Like everyone pulls yes. so much inspiration from him, but you never remake his movies. Unlike other people who, there's just movies that get remade all the time, but you don't necessarily pull inspiration from those original movies. And I, I always found that fascinating about him. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, he, he remade himself a few times, which is interesting. You know, he did The Man Who Knew Too Much twice. Uh, uh, and he remade some of his earliest films. But uh, Wait, what? Yeah. what? This, this I don't know. Yeah, he did yeah. two versions of the film. Yeah, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he had a chance to do it with a bigger budget and uh, with a better distribution and... Uh, uh, he redid the film, uh, which is not as rare back then as 
uh, even though it sounds so odd, you know, like Casablanca was a remake of a film called Algiers that had just come out just a few years before that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you got to remember is that without television, uh, you know, radio was king, but movie theaters were just humming along people just all the time. It, it was the beast that needed to be fed. So there was a, a lot of content being created. Gotcha. Uh, you know, studio actors would make seven, eight movies a year. Um, in some cases, like I think that the year that Dracula came out, Boris, I mean, excuse me, uh, Bella Lugosi, um, I think he made like 11 movies that year, you know, because um, the studio system, just the way it worked. Um, with Hitchcock, you know, Psycho got remade uh, famously with, you know, uh, Vince Vaughn and like a frame for frame remake, which is uh, in a, of itself kind of a, you know, a film school kind of experiment in, in a way. And then uh, Rear Window got remade a couple times, including one version with uh, Christopher Reeve uh, as, as the character Jimmy Stewart played, who's uh, trapped in a wheelchair. Uh, so of course that has a lot more poignancy when Christopher Reed did it toward the end of his life. Uh, oh, wow. But um, yeah, you don't really see Hitchcock stuff get remade. Uh, I think the most fascinating thing about Hitchcock is his branding. I mean, I, the, he, he was the first, even he's the Colonel Sanders of film directors. Like he, he put himself right on the bucket. Um, he was in all these movies, you know, he do these cameos and, so, and some of them very clever, like Lifeboat. You know, you have a group of people, like five or six people trapped in Lifeboat. It's hard to do a walk by, a walk in. Uh, walk on <laughs> uh, it's hard to walk on water and uh, so for that one he was in a uh, an advertisement on the back of the newspaper it was a before and after uh, a weight loss and the photos were exactly the same which is even <laughs> more hysterical but uh, he he would he created a brand name for himself you know that he he's the only director has a theme song the only director that uh, you recognize by the profile <laughs> you know like today like who who's the most famous directors you have once the ones that, uh, who's the most famous director that didn't start as an actor? You know, you got like Christopher Nolan and Oliver Stone, uh, Ridley Scott maybe, you know, but most of the directors now, Spielberg clearly. Spielberg. Uh, Spielberg I would say Spielberg's the only one that you'd recognize the silhouette of outside of a Hitchcock. Right, right. Uh, and, but like you, you can know, you can pick a Nolan out as a silhouette for sure not, right, to your and, point. Yeah. And, Exactly. Yeah. And Christopher Nolan's suits, you know, and uh, his sort of British demeanor and uh, a lot of that I think is, is uh, if not a direct nod to, to Hitchcock's way of approaching a, a career, it, it speaks to the texture of, of Nolan's influences. You know, like he, I've never seen the guy not wearing it with a jacket on. I mean, I've talked to him, with, I've been to his house and he was wearing a jacket. Like I've never seen him. <laughs> I, I was on Inception the day that they let all the water come out it was like a 200,000 gallon tank of water that emptied into the the, the set destroyed the staircase I'm watching Leonardo DiCaprio like run across the staircases all this water rips through um he was wearing a jacket you know he's there <laughs> like you know like he's like oh this is rather nice don't you think yeah sure um I, I, I said to him I don't think it went that good can you do it again and he just looked at me he said no <laughs> like, <laughs> like I was joking it was just fine the way it was <laughs> but, that's uh, amazing yeah he's, he's a very droll kind of guy and um you know he's american by birth you know um but he was schooled in in the uh, uk um and schooled in hitchcock i'd say definitely schooled in hitchcock wow that's yeah i'm i'm just thinking i never correlated the two before but that's a uh, that makes a lot yeah. of sense 
you know, Christopher Nolan's sort of the Alfred Hitchcock of superhero movies. Um, wow. Although he, please don't ever tell him I said uh, that. I, I, was, I was about to say, what would he say to that? Yeah, well, things, <laughs> things have been going rather well. So and then that would be the end of that. So yeah, what a, it's a Halloween tradition. I think we should do this again. Uh, Matt, will you join us again next year? If we I, before then, I'm I'm down to join at any point in time to talk uh, horror and all things related. Yeah, and Patrick, of course, he's been uh, he's been taken because this is that kind of episode. So hopefully, he can resurrect for next next season or next year. Exactly. But um, if he can't, his soul will be you know spread across the the remains of this episode. There's always sequels. There's always sequels. <laughs> when was the last time a, a horror film didn't have a sequel, uh, if it had a chance to? So, so thank you for joining us here on Mindspace, and please come back again and stay safe. Well, it was really exciting to hear you talk to Patrick and then Matt, and it was a, a fun conversation, and they had fun. You know, I really, I really enjoyed these uh, Halloween episodes we've been doing, but. Outside of that, you know, I, I know you have another essential shelf for the week that we have to get to before we go. Yeah, that's right. One little bit of uh, unfinished business, but uh, uh, thank you. I enjoyed the, the Halloween visit by the, the amazing friends as well. That was a, a lot of fun. We're going to have to figure out how to do that more often. Definitely, definitely. So for the essential shelf, I'm going with a, uh, a book that came out in 1994, uh, originally came out uh, and was published by Marvel Comics, and it's called Marvels. Uh, and I'm sure you've probably heard about it, and I'm not sure if you've read it, but you really should. And it's uh, Marvels is a four-issue limited comic book series, and it was published, uh, as I said, in 1994. And it uh, was written by Kurt Busiek, and it was painted by Alex Ross, who's a superstar in the comics field, and he's known for his sort of photorealistic, you know, larger-than-life heroic representations of, of classic characters that he achieves partly through use of photography for uh, establishing models. He'll use lighting and stuff and real models uh, to kind of um, give him the visual information he needs to then uh, realize these uh, kind of beautiful painted portraits of, of heroes who look like Greek gods. Um, and it's a the photorealistic artwork work that Alex Ross does feels really, really, especially appropriate and um, and powerful in Marvels, this four issue limited series, because the premise is that it follows a journalist who's following all the superheroes in the Marvel universe at the beginning of the Marvel universe. So, as the Fantastic Four are coming together, and Spider Man is launching his career, and as the Avengers are coming together, you know all the the mythology of those early Silver Age, Silver Age Marvel stories are revisited this time through the vantage point of uh, a journalist. And uh, he's a photographer. And that alone makes the photorealistic artwork especially appropriate. And then the execution of that artwork, artwork makes the entire series a classic, which is why it's on the essential shelf. You know, I'm a huge fan of that, actually, Alex Ross's artwork. I, I love the hyper-realism of it. And um, it's just one of those things where you look at it, you're just, like, stunned by how gorgeous it is. Yeah, yeah. And then it's invested with power. You know, it, it's, uh, it's in a lot of, for a long time, the Alex Ross comics were the best live-action version of Marvel comics, in my mind. You know, like, mm -hmm. uh, before the movies were good, it felt like you were seeing 
a movie when you look at Alex Ross's version of the Marvel characters. So like when you see Giant Man in the Alex Ross story or, um, you know, the Green Goblin in, in, those, mm-hmm. in, the, in that series, it's like seeing them on a movie screen realized as, as living, breathing uh, characters. So that's, that's a pretty high compliment to his artwork. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't, I actually don't know much about Marvels, but it sounds pretty interesting. I'll definitely have to check that out. Um, it's, you said it's four issues or four. It's, it's four. It was originally published as a four issue series, limited series. And then it uh, was collected up in a, a, a you know, a, a trade paperback like a volume. Yeah, yeah. You know, a comprehensive, uh, an omnibus of it. And, uh, last year, uh, was the 25th anniversary of Marvel's and it was such a landmark when it came out and, and, um, and the production of it was really beautiful looking and it had like uh, uh, the covers had uh, a, a clear film on them that turned so it made it look like you were looking through a window almost. Oh, that's very cool. So they uh, they revisited it with a new series, a new series by Alex Ross uh, last year. So there's also a follow up if, if you're a fan of the original uh, and hadn't revisited it in a while, uh, last year's anniversary added something um, another release to that sort of uh, shelf. And if you haven't heard about Marvels at all, I highly recommend it. It's also, it's a great uh, primer for the uh, Marvel universe because it, it's, it's, it, it introduces all the characters in a way that they were introduced in the early issues of Fantastic Four, Avengers, Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy, all the comics uh, that Marvel published in between 1960 and 63 that really kind of introduced uh, all the, the central characters of the Marvel universe as we know it. So if I, if someone didn't know anything about Marvel at all, that would be a good one to hand them and be like, here's a great introduction to all the characters. Exactly. Or the main characters. Exactly. And it's, it's also, it's very satisfying. Uh, it's very satisfying in two ways. One is if you uh, are coming to it fresh, it's a great introduction and one that feels like, it's it speaks to the experience of reading Marvel comics in the early '60s when because you're you're encountering heroes in the order of their earliest adventures, so it plays out like those early days. And the second thing that makes it really good is that say that you're like me, someone that's been reading Marvel comics for decades, and you know this stuff. You know, uh, it's it's part of the it's hardwired into your sensibilities and your memory and your emotions. To read this, it, it's like seeing postcards that you've never seen from your childhood because it's, it's the, it, it recreates certain key scenes, key covers, key frames from uh, key panels from different uh, classic issues, but does them in a new way and with this photorealistic style. So it's, uh, it's a great way to go back for people that are Marvel fans and maybe even if they've kind of drifted away from Marvel, it's, it's a valentine to their past. So it's very, very satisfying in that level. And it's also very, very satisfying for someone who's coming to Marvel for the first time, but has a sense of the shape of the thing and wants to know more about it. It's a, it's a great and organic way to kind of learn that story. Well, it's very cool. And the POV you were mentioning reminds me of another essential shelf that we did, which is the Dark Knight Returns, where the, the POV is generally, you know, from like the TV correspondence, they keep going back to them and they kind of give the exposition of what's going on. Yeah, you know, and, and on that one, you're seeing the screen representation there, the journalists on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and the TV, uh, the shape of the TV uh, is like actually part of the, the, the layout of the page and the panel composition. And this one, it's, it's, it's slightly different because their daily bugle 
uh, it's inside the Daily Bugle. It's, oh, interesting. Uh, you know, he's a photographer. And uh, so you're looking through the lens of his experience in his life and you're seeing these characters. And when he's looking through the lens, he's seeing the action uh, posed in a way that's going to remind Marvel fans of, you know, classic covers like, you know, uh, Avengers, you know, uh, number one or, you know, what have you. But it's uh, yeah. It's, so it, I think it's 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 one of those. When it came out, I, I just adored it, and it 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 uh, it really made Alex Ross a superstar. And and Kurt, the writer, he he would go back and did things like Astro City, which has some of the same sensibility, and which I had, uh, I think is a great series. Uh, lasted for many issues. So there's uh, it, it was the beginning of a lot of other things. And Kingdom Come, you know, followed that, which had uh, Alex Ross using his similar art style but for dc characters uh mm -hmm. you know, it's in a similar way which was on our essential shelf two weeks ago so you know it just the hits keep coming yep definitely well that, what what a great choice um i'm looking forward to reading that i'll pick it up this week we'll yeah talk about it next week oh yeah i think you're gonna really enjoy it i think you're gonna really enjoy it well unless you have anything else i think that's the end of the episode no i think that that sounds great and uh thanks for everything today this is a busy one but a fun one yeah, definitely. I enjoyed both of our guests, Matt and Patrick, and we hope to have them back soon and uh, continue our fun Halloween month here at Mindspace. Sounds good. All right. I'll talk to you later, Jeff. Take care.